Hi, this is Sam Chamberlain, and welcome to Things to Ponder, the sermon podcast from St. Mary's United Church of Christ in Silver Run, Maryland. Follow along with St. Mary's at stmarysucc.org or on Facebook and Instagram. Wishing you peace and good, my friends. This past week, as we've continued in this, I've done a couple of times where I've had to ask people to pray. And you all, I'm sure, at various times have asked to do this. If, if nowhere else, then it is not necessarily even at Christmas. At the Thanksgiving table, somebody's got to pray, right? Now, in my family, they're lucky. They have a pastor, and they think I have some, like, a professional obligation to do this. And so I've prayed over every meal for 17 years. It just is. But have you ever asked someone to pray who doesn't do that regularly? How does it go? There's always this, or, or this is what happens. You always say, hey, who wants to pray? And you do the nose goes, last person with their finger on their nose. Like everybody wants out of this, right? And then when you do, it's, always, it's either like, dear God, thank you for the food, amen, which is fine. Or it's this effuse, oh, almighty God, we praise thee and thank thee for this glorious turkey thou hast placed before us. And we're like, do you talk like that normally? Because you shouldn't. When you ask people to pray like that, sometimes our prayers go, in, go sideways in all kinds of ways. And then what I also discovered, and something I'll be sharing a bit more about throughout the course of the week, is that the Catoctin Association of the United Church of Christ is, is setting out on an initiative to pray for every one of our congregations by name through 40 days. And so I asked all the pastors, I said, hey, I want you to write a prayer that we can pray for you. And I said, I want you to think really carefully about what your congregation's deepest need really is. Put it into a prayer that's four or five sentences, send it over. Well, all week long, I'm getting these prayers that are like a page long. And it's like, Lord, help us to walk as you walked in the cool of the garden. And help us to focus our eyes on where you would have us. And I'm like, do you all pray like that in church? Because nobody prays like that. Even our pastors sometimes struggle. These huge soaring prayers. Now, yes, a beautiful prayer is a beautiful thing. Nobody's trying to take that away from anybody. There is beauty there for sure. For, for sure. But can we or should we pray that way all the time? Is that what prayer is about? Because if it is, it's no wonder nobody wants to do it. Because if you got to do the these and thous, I'm sorry, I'm out. Let's don't pray that way. So we turn to our tools in the Psalms. The Psalms are significantly less effuse than most of us are around our Thanksgiving tables. And we see that not because of their language. Of course, they are beautifully crafted literature. We know that. But for the person who has been in the Psalms for a while, you start to notice that there's a lot of like little things kind of there. Like you'll be reading a Psalm and then it'll be like, this is a Psalm of David to such and such or a Psalm of Korah and it was played on the instrument. And then you'll be rocking along and then all of a sudden there's this word called Selah and you're like, well, why? There's all these kind of comments and little detritus that's a part of all of this. And the Psalms are full of editorial comment. Things outside of the actual words of the Psalm, but are intended, and here's why they're there, they're intended to give shape and context to the words. Shape and context. Of the 150 Psalms that we have, 116 of them have some kind of introductory sentence. Often these comments really plug us into a biblical narrative. They kind of root us in sort of the quote-unquote history of the prayer. 
Other times they are super, super obscure and we're like, I don't know who that's addressed to or what we're supposed to do with that. And that's okay. But regardless, these kind of little comments tie us to the historic narrative. A place, a time, a people, and an event. And here's the really important thing about that in the words of Eugene Peterson, whose words I will lean into heavy this morning. He says, prayer is connected by these titles to a world of friends and enemies, sickness and health, song and celebration. He said these titles connect us to actual things, friends and enemies, sickness and health, song and celebration. These comments show us the way to a way of thinking about prayer that will help to shape it. And this editorial commentary is central for presenting them as our primary text for prayer because what they do is precisely tie us to something real. They protect us, even though they might not feel like the most spiritual thing in the world. They're doing a really spiritual thing. They are protecting us from the common and fatal error of spiritualizing prayer. Peterson again. Spiritualized prayer is denatured prayer. Prayer in which all of the dirt and noise and ordinary life is boiled out. It is a prayer that cultivates exalted feelings and sublime thoughts. It is prayer that is embarrassed by the coarse subject matter that intrudes itself into most 24-hour periods, but takes great pleasure in grand aphorisms. Peterson says, it is escapist prayer. Spiritualized prayer is denatured. It is deformed prayer. Now, I grew up hearing a form of spiritualized prayer all the time, and it was always given away by one single word, and that word was always just. Lord, we just want to thank you. Lord, we just want to ask you. Lord, we just want to give you the praise. It's like every sentence had to have this word just in it. And if you've been there, you know what I'm talking about. You've never been to a Wednesday night prayer meeting where somebody didn't use the word just a million times. We just want to say thank you. But we might criticize that. But our liturgy can do the same thing at times. We can craft it so that it becomes this really highly elevated thing. It's full of helium, kind of floating up away from the real issues, from the real selves that find themselves situated in the pew this morning. You ever felt that? You ever felt like liturgy was so high above you that it really didn't make a whole lot of difference when you left here? It can be beautiful, but oftentimes it can feel disconnected. And that's a problem for us as people, because we are not beings that are seeking a higher level of existence. We are beings that are rooted here in the dirt and in the real life where we find ourselves. So if we are to be properly formed, then prayer has got to invade our real lives and be united to our real self, a self that goes to work and raises children and struggles with its finances and is spooked when we go to the doctor and, yes, from time to time wants to make an inappropriate gesture to the guy who just cut you off on the beltway. All of that is food for prayer. And so like a parent... Who, at the carnival, who ties the balloon. You ever done, parents, you've done this? You know the balloon, if you don't watch it, is going to float away and end up in some turtle's mouth. So you tie the balloon to the wrist. The details that we find in Scripture are intended to tie our prayers to the reality of ourselves, that we would pray as we actually are. 
Prayer and life are like body and soul. One cannot exist without the other, and never should we separate the two. And so most of the attributions that we get in the Psalms are linked to David, which is useful because we know more about David's life than any other person in Scripture. So it gives us a lot of food for thought in that respect. And the person whose life we know the most about is also the person shown to be the most often at prayer. Nobody prays more in the scriptures than David does. Yes, that includes Jesus. And so if these narrative parts, these comments show us the plot, if the narrative elements, you know, the Old Testament show us how David's life kind of plays out, what the Psalms do is give us the passion and the heart at that story. On the one hand, we have the facts, and on the other hand, we have what David's thinking and what David is praying. And when we join those together, there's a little bit of that spiritual magic that happens. As we go through the list, we find a lot of prayers that were inserted into David's life. Psalm 3, which we read last week, was prayed when he fled from Absalom, his son. His son was trying to take over the throne and was seeking to kill his dad so that he could be the ruler. That's a time you want to pray. And that's a time you don't want to skip the details. Psalm 51, the most famous penitential psalm we have in our scriptures. It was when Nathan the prophet came and he accuses him rightly of committing adultery and murder so that he might have Bathsheba. Psalm 59, for example, When Saul sent men to watch David's house so that when he emerged, they might kill him. David's life is absolutely a soap opera. But we don't just get the soap opera. We also get these, we get these moments that we can figure out how David prayed in the midst of them. And as we read, we discover that most of these are around times of trouble. It is times of trouble that we are called to pray, times of trouble that really become the launching off point for us to learn about prayer. And if prayer really is about being properly formed, then we've got to let it touch our trouble. And trouble is one of the easiest places to get started. And if we start in trouble, then we've got to pray a lot less of, dear God, please be with me tomorrow at the doctor, and more, dear God, I'm terrified. Dear God, why is this happening to me? Dear God, please tell me you're going to deliver me from this. Those are not the same prayers. Because remember, this is a story that you are in. By praying, you don't get out of the difficult work of sin and enemy and family. You get further into it. Prayer will drive us back towards our lives, not remove us from it. You do not become spiritualized and above it all. You are not exterior. You are inside to yourself, to others, and to God. And so given this truth, we can take a look at a psalm like Psalm 57. Michelle read for us the story and then read the psalm that is attributed to that story. We read the story, a story where Saul is trying to kill David because God had said, David is my man. Well, that's a problem when you're the guy on the throne. And so Saul wants to get rid of David so that he can continue to consolidate his power. And in the context of that story, where there's this constant back and forth and David goes up and cuts off just a piece of his garment, which is meant to indicate that he had the means and the opportunity to kill Saul, but did not. And then there's this whole kind of interaction back and forth between the two of them. But in the context of that story, we read the real cry of David's heart, where he says, be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for in you my soul has taken refuge. What David is, where his prayer starts, he's like, God, this is a really tough spot. God, I'm trying to protect myself. This man is out to kill me. 
And so I need to protect myself. Killing him would do that. But at the same time, this is the man you have set on the throne. And so how do I honor that guy while also maybe needing to eliminate him in order to save myself? This is a hard spot. And what David is praying, he said, I'm dialed into you, God, so I need you to do your part. I don't know which way to go. And then verse 3 has the distinct feel of a man reminding himself of who he prays to, training his eyes on God when he wants it to wander to his own solutions. And so he starts by saying, be merciful, this is really hard, but God's got my back. And because he connects with that deeper reality, he works through his situation. And he's honest about it. He says, my soul is in the midst of lions. Now remember, David's a poet. David's a musician. So his language at times will be more effuse than maybe yours are. This is, of course, a metaphor. But it is not merely a metaphor. Because Saul was as much a threat as the lion that David had killed once upon a time. And the threat isn't just spears and arrows, though it is. That's very literal. But it's also the words says these words are like spears and arrows. What Saul says is cutting me to the quick. He identifies the place where his pain comes from. And it is wider and deeper than we might imagine. And in this way, David is keenly aware of the dangers around him and lays them out so that God can see them. He's like, this is, this is the issue. And yet, David is not so focused on that that he forgets that God is actually doing a thing. And he identifies what his enemies are up to. He said, they dug a pit in my way. We remember the story of Joseph where they threw him in a pit. And they're like, they're doing the same thing to me. They're going to pitch me in a pit and they're going to kill me. But then he says, but they have fallen into it themselves. You can almost hear him laugh. Like they dug the pit and then they like fell in it. It's okay to laugh during prayer. And I suspect David did a little bit of that here. Like how silly can you be, guys? The fear gives way to laughter. In both ways, it's full of human emotion and the confidence that comes with it when emotion is laid bare. And he finally comes back to it and he says, my heart is steadfast. My heart is steadfast. I'm going to be all right, he says, which is as reasonable and honest a prayer as his fears were in verse 1. And given the way that this all works out, we can hear him cry at the end. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn, for your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. This is how David works out what's going on in his own soul. He gets out the guitar. He gets out the lyre, and he writes music. That's how he sorts out his emotion. And he says, awake, O harp and lyre, I will awake the dawn. And he connects at the end to your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Even when my life is threatened, your steadfast love is great to the heavens. The story and the way it plays out from David's vulnerability to God's character of faithfulness, observing how it all turns out, brings David back to the place where he wanted to be the whole time, which was in a place of worship. But he had to go through his emotions and he had to go through the hard spots to get there. In Psalm 57 and throughout the Psalms, it is the art, the nuance, the little details that lead us not to pray in denatured, spiritualized prayer. But rather, it reminds us that we are people on a journey. And a journey that is hard. A journey that often starts in trouble and brings fear. 
but a journey that's going to have us connect to our deeper realities of faith. A reality, a prayer that we're going to lay out the land and say, God, here's the situation as I see it. And watching God work out God's own purposes in our lives. And in all of this, we remember that it's God who is doing the work. David didn't, David didn't deliver David. God delivered David. God did the work. David is just being observant, thoughtful, and attentive, describing what he sees and what he feels. And that is what brings him to a place of praise and a place of trust and a place of love. And so, my friends, where is God in your life? And where does attention to detail in your life need to be paid? Because we're going to pray about something, we've got, we got to pay really close attention to it. Describe it. Lay it out. Both what's happening, what you believe to be happening, and how you feel about it. Let that be your prayers. But friends, regardless, the story of Scripture is unfolding in your life. It is connected to the details of your life. And when we get into the act of truth-telling, Paying attention to detail, it holds the possibility of transformation. And when we step out of these spiritualized prayers, which are really a way of getting around ourselves, when we step out of our spiritualized prayer and tie these prayers to our wrists, to our very lives, what we discover is our own passion. We discover that God cares about us and we discover that God is going to do something because God is already involved in our lives. And what we'll find come pouring out of us is commitment flowing out as we watch the story of God interweave itself into, the, into our very beings, our bodies and our emotions, our very selves. Let the little details help you do the work and pray the prayers that really speak to your life. 